Hello and welcome to Happy Place with me, Fern Cotton. This is the podcast where we can expand our minds by learning more about both ourselves and the world around us. Today, I'm meeting Sophie Morgan. I had this idea that I was paralysed and I was frightened of a lot of stuff. I was frightened of my body, I was frightened of other people's perceptions of me, I was frightened of the wheelchair, I was frightened of falling out of it, I was frightened, I had a lot of fear. And I realised that, look, if you're going to let yourself feel fear, you're going to be more paralysed than you already are. And then I started realising that there was this liberated feeling of, all right, you're frightened, but that's okay, just move towards it. Sophie was in a car crash when she was 18 years old and was instantly paralysed from the chest down. She's now a TV presenter, writer and award-winning disability activist. But in the 18 years since she was paralysed, she's had to do a lot of work to overcome both other people's and her own perceptions of disability. Driving Forwards is the name of her soon-to-be-published incredible memoir. I was lucky enough to get an advanced copy and I completely devoured it. I could not put this book down. It is incredible. She unflinchingly looks at what it's like to navigate our ableist world in a wheelchair, but also explores the deep-rooted emotions, fear, pain, gratitude, joy she's felt since the crash. Feelings we can all resonate with in our own ways. And this book is so beautifully written. Sophie and I met up in a central London studio and we honestly could have chatted for hours about everything, but mostly our shared adoration of Frida Kahlo. She comes up a lot in this chat, so be warned. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Okay, let's do it. Here's the show. Sophie. Hi. This is just magical. I'm so, so thrilled to talk to you today. I can't tell you what it feels like to sit here. I know it sounds to anyone listening that would be like, I'll get over it. But honestly, it feels bizarrely surreal to be sitting here about my book sitting next to you in front of you and you've read it. And that in itself is just... God, what a book. <sighs> Bloody hell. I mean, we've been sort of messaging since. And I f- it's surprising that we've never crossed paths before. Yeah, I know. I know. It's Obviously, there have been so many chances when we could have. And I think like anyone who follows you, we feel like you know you because you're always so transparent and yep. like authentic. And there you are. I'm like, I feel like I know you. <laughs> I'm looking like shit in the morning. <laughs> Well, that's what you sent me. That was the pajamas. message you sent me. Do you remember in the first bit of the book? You're like, yes, I love that bit where you're because I was talking about how nice it feels to be on camera looking like shit. Looking like shit. Yeah, it's liberating. I DM'd you when I got. It's like within the first few pages of the book, yeah. 
And you so brilliantly describe that moment of being on camera. You've got dirt on your face. Your hair's a mess. Yeah. And it felt like a moment where you were just... Because obviously you'd done all of these high-profile presenting jobs where, you know, the score, you have your hair and makeup done, you're wearing a nice outfit, and it feels slightly mm. artificial. It does. But there you were in this raw moment, and I was like, I know that feeling. Yeah. That feeling of just like, I'm not being the telly me. I'm just being me. Yeah. And you don't get to... I mean, we all know television is what it is and there's there's a game to play, there's a role to play, but I felt when I... So, so to explain it, when I, I'd basically just ridden this adapted motorbike all the way from London to Scotland and it was such an achievement and then I'm sitting there and the, this camera crew were filming me for part of the series that we're about to start filming and the camera's on and I'm like, I'm covered in mud. I look like shit. I've got hair everywhere. And I was like, do you know what? This is so liberating. And that was just this feeling of like, that's how I want to be now. Yeah. And it almost felt like this moment where not only was the time and the place of actually being where I was at that time, which is I was on the bike where I had the car crash and I had come back to make a documentary that was going to be sort of moving forward from there and looking into the next part of my life. And it all felt very monumental. And then to look like shit at the same time, I was like, this is me. I'm me. I'm finally yeah. me. It's taken a long time to get here, but here I am. Yeah, it's a lovely feeling. But that, it is. It's so liberating because I think yeah, you've been presenting for a long time now mm. and you're an exceptional TV presenter. I know it wasn't part of your plan, but it, it's almost, I don't know if you feel like you were born to do it, but you certainly are. And and you do at times for you have to adapt to be what other people need you to be in that role. Mm. But certainly for this documentary, it was about you. It was about your life to an extent, yeah. as well as the greater cause at play. Mm. And and to feel like, yeah, I can just peel back the layers and go, this is me. I can't do it. I can't be anyone else. This mm. is who I am. And isn't that the greatest feeling? And I think it comes with age. I know you talk about it where then you feel that sort of moment of going, I'm not going to play these games. I don't want right. to do the things that make me feel uncomfortable anymore. I don't want to say the things that I don't believe in. I don't want to be the person I'm not. And it takes a while to get there. And I have to say, I think I'm only able to really genuinely feel I am there because I've just written this book. Because yeah. I've, I said, right, I'm going to... I didn't intend to write a book. I'd never, I'd always thought in my mind one day it'd be a wonderful thing to do. Then lockdown happened. This opportunity came around to write the story and it, I wrote my story. And in writing it, I realised I'd actually got to a point where, shit, I made it. I think I'm here. I think I've figured those things out to know who I am now and be authentic. And we say these things a lot. You hear it thrown around a lot, you know, how to be true to yourself. It takes a lot of work. It takes oh a lot God. of time and a lot of, uh, I think, a lot of courage to do that. And certainly, I think, as a wheelchair user, as a woman, as a presenter, well, all these other labels that I carry, it's taken a long time to work out which one I actually am. And, yeah, I think now... The presenting has, has become, as you say, it's like it's part of who I am and maybe something I was meant to do. And I enjoy it so much, but I, I, I enjoy so much more presenting as myself, mm. not just as the presenter, you know. And that's a hard thing to get. That's that's glass ceiling stuff, trying to get to that space and be yourself on screen. And when there's opportunities come around, you've got to grab them. They don't come around all that often, but I think I'm getting closer and closer to having more of them happen. So going back to that moment where you you'd done this huge motorcycle ride and you'd arrived at this exact spot mm. that you could see the mark on the road from where you'd had your crash at the age of 18. With cameras around you, were you able to process the hugeness of that moment and the pain or was it just all too surreal to do so? Do you know, I've been back to the place where I crashed maybe three or four times now in my life. And as you say, there's this marker on the road and it's very, very weird to see because it's this 
almost like a portal into the past. It's like there's a, there's a big, basically where I crashed, there is a, there's a black skid in the road that's still there 18 years later, right? So this thing that happened that I can barely piece together because it was so traumatic and so the crash was so bad. I don't remember a lot of it, but there's this marker, like a, an actual proof that this thing happened. You know what I mean? It's really surreal. And sitting by it, you know, any, at any time now, even 18 years down the line or however long it's been since my injury, I can't quite take in the enormity of it all. How there is this point, we all have sliding doors in our lives and we all, you know, can look back and go, oh, if I had not gone on that train or if I had not met that man or if I had not, you know, had that conversation or taken that flight, my life would have gone a different direction. I'm sure we can all relate yeah. to that. But for me, that's this like when I sit in this spot especially with cameras around me, I can't get my head around how there could have been a completely different life lived. And I, I don't often think about what that life was. Like if I hadn't been paralysed, if I hadn't driven the car the way I did, if I hadn't taken that road, if I'd taken another one, you know, all those things, they all come rushing up. And then there's the camera going, how do you feel? How do you feel? Oh. I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But, uh, you know, I think it's you just got to do, it's almost like any big milestone in your life. It takes a while to go, right, stop ground yourself. How do you feel? And it takes, a, I don't know, I think it, it, it's a hard thing to do to really identify what it is it all feels because there's a lot of loss in there. There's a lot of gratitude in there. There's a lot of like, you know, potential what ifs and who could have, like, who could I have been sort of thing, but also like a real gratitude. I'm still here. I didn't die. I could have died in that spot. So yeah, it's, it was, it was huge, but you know, what a lot, like I also just have to stop and think, Shit, you did it. I was paralysed at a time when when I was paralysed. I, I didn't know what I could do. Like, no one had told me what was possible for a young woman with a high-level paralysis. And a, I had no idea. I, I didn't think disabled people could do all that much. And I that was my naivety, my ignorance. I'd never really met many disabled people. And so, you know, when I... I write this in my book, actually, when I met myself, I was the first disabled person I'd ever met. So I was, I had a lot of ableism that I carried with me. It's taken me a long time to unpack it. So even just the action of riding a motorbike to the place where I crashed the car with a camera crew that I have brought with me feels like, wow, look what you've done. Wow, you've created this thing that, you know, you had no idea was possible. And that's exciting as well. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Well, we were chatting just before we came into the studio we were chatting about, you know, doing this, putting your a lot of your life story, you can never put the whole thing there, but a lot of your life story in ink onto a page yeah. and just how bizarre that is. Yeah. And the fact that we've never met, although I feel like I know you and you feel like you know me, but I've I've read through your life and I've, you know, mm. lapped up every word of these beautiful and painful stories and then here we are and I know all of this stuff and that's about to happen with thousands of strangers that you might not ever meet (laughs) you know what how how are you dealing with that because that's big I okay so I think the way that I am getting sleep at the moment and not being feeling terrified is there's two things going on for me so when I had my injury I didn't really have a lot Oh, I didn't have very many people around to use as role models. I didn't really know much about, like I just said, what was possible for people like me. So part of me wanted to write my book to and write my story just to give somebody who might be going through a similar situation an idea that don't be limited by your own or other people's beliefs of what you you and your body can and can't do. 
because of course you are now going to be living if you have a physical disability within the limitations of what your body can and can't do but if you can expand your mind and you can find you know systems around you to support you you can you sky's the limit really it is and and i don't mean that flippantly i also don't mean to dispel at people that literally have had choices taken away from them because that's a very real thing but if you can create an attitude and a, an environment around you that enables you you'd be surprised how far you can go it's a very privileged position to be in but it's true and I think that was one reason why I wanted to write the story down just to sort of say look this is an example of a way in which you can disbelieve some of the, the myths around you know disability and all those things so there's that I also took a long and hard look in the mirror and I thought right who are the people that I admire the most in the world who are the role models who are the artists, the musicians, the painters, the thinkers that I adore? What do they do? They tell the truth. They do. They put their heart and soul out there. And they talk about, like, you look, Tracy Emin, who talks about her body being ravaged all the way through her art, but you know, more recently, you know, with her cancer, for example, or you look at, you know, Frida Kahlo, Frida, who Frida. I have just literally, well, she's my hero. <clears throat> and you look at what she did. She puts her reality on paper. And I thought... Oh, well, on canvas. I thought that's what I have to do. I have to do that for myself. If I write a story that isn't genuine, what have I done? I've wasted my own time and other people's time. And so holding those two thoughts in my head, I'm just going forward with this and hoping that, yes, it is a very raw and very unflinching and very candid account of what it's like to wake up with paralysis and live with it in a way that I don't feel has ever really been looked at before. Certainly, I've not read a story like it before. There's that. But I also feel, why not? We've got to unpack some of the truths. I think it's such such a wonderful thing to do to to go into the nuances of disability and start to understand the different lived experiences that we all have. Often you get grouped, you know, wheelchair user or somebody with a sensory impairment. You know, you get you kind of get lumped together or even wider. The whole group of disability gets grouped together. But there's so much within that that needs to be explored. And spinal injury carries its own complications and it's very impactful to the people that have it and the family members of those who occur, you know, acquire it. So I wanted to also really go into those two, the relationships I've had to go through with my family and how that's impacted them too. All of this wanted to feed in, you know. So there's a lot to it, I think. And you did it so eloquently. I mean, <clears throat> I feel like I know your mum and your dad and your brother and I haven't met any of them, but I've got such a sense of their personalities and their own coping mechanisms, which you describe so beautifully. And... There was one line that really impacted me deeply when you were exploring that, uh, well, the processing you were having to do, especially early on in your rehabilitation, looking at young Sophie mm. and looking at the Sophie that's in front of me today. And you say, I mean, I, as you can see with the actual book, have dog-eared about a thousand pages and I've written loads of quotes, which I'm going to you know, chuck back your way. But you say... Who you were as a person in the before makes all the difference to who you become in the after, which I don't think I'd ever really spent much time looking at that sort of sentiment and understanding it. Okay. And of course it makes so much sense and perhaps it's very bespoke with, you know, the person, but also the shape and texture of trauma that someone's been through. But I yeah. think it applies to any trauma yeah. You can look at, okay, well, how was I before and how has that informed how I've dealt with things and, and who I am today? Mm. Mm. So looking back at young Sophie, you describe her again just so articulately and you describe her as wild. When you look back at her now, how do you feel? 
it was one of the hardest things I think I did in the book was actually go, right, let's spend some time with her. And I do refer to myself in the third person yeah. all the time because for reasons as I exp- explain is... And actually what we were talking about just before we came in here, because I know you've spoken about it, written about it in your book, is when you look at your younger self, you can somehow feel sometimes a little bit disappointed with her or perhaps, you know, a little bit embarrassed about her or let down by her or in a way, you know, a bit scathing or or even just mean. And Mm -hmm. I think for a long time, because I crashed my car when I was 18 years old, I was at that point where we're probably all at our most... Well, wild is one word, but we're all working things out. We're on that precipice of life. We're about to fall off into, you know, wake up into the real world. But we're a bit blindfolded, you know, like the the fool in the tarot card. Mm -hmm. You're sort of like, la, la, looking around. Where am I? Everything's groovy. Here we go. Hello, world. And then, boom, life happens. And I look at her and I feel a bit disparaging. I'm like, oh, you fool. You had no idea what was about to happen to you. And I was like that for a long time. I I was a bit like... I'm going to move on. I've become a better version of myself. I'm a better version than her. and But I also was slightly jealous of her and slightly sort of, gosh, you know, it'd be so wonderful to have some of those traits of hers that I no longer have, that sort of the tallness of her or the physical strength of her or just the femininity of her, you know, being able to strut somewhere or whatever those things are that and that the non-disabled version of me can do. So there was a bit of a chasm there, a bit of a friction, and I, but I just moved on. But in the book, I decided, right, I need to spend some time with her, work out what it was about her that made me into who I am. Um, and I really did reconcile those those differences. And then towards the end of the book, I found myself actually spending, it was almost an exercise, like a therapy. I sat very, very quickly. The rest of the book I agonised over, I wrote very, very, several times. I could, I'm not a very natural writer and I was writing and rewriting and rewriting, but this one chapter I sat and like a stream of consciousness just wrote, what would I do if I was her for a day? And I sat and I wrote, I, wrote, I was like, I'd, I'd go skiing with my dad or I'd run around with my mum or, you know, I would, I would dance with my friends or something. And it, it just came out. And I have to say, humbly very simple things I wasn't like I'm going to climb Everest it was literally Mm. I would walk around walk down the street with my mum I'd you know rave with my friends or something and uh, I found myself at the very end of it just going do you know what I don't want to be her anymore and I don't dislike her anymore she would probably be quite proud of who I am and if you were sat with little Fern if they were here our little lusses I think they'd be like big up but it takes time doesn't it it takes time and it takes a lot of self-inventory. Yeah. And I think most people, you know, maybe whether there's been trauma at play or not, will look back and feel, yeah, just, you know, I've mm. had certainly periods where I thought, I I can't even look at young Fern. Yeah. I will do everything I can to not be like her. But yeah. you're so right. We have to, to honour those younger versions yeah. of ourselves. So what what was the conclusion? What bits of... Yeah young Sophie have made you who you are today? I think the stubbornness and the belligerence, the sort of don't tell me what to do Mm. type of kid. I was a pain and I I pushed back and I, but I think that's helped me so much. So when I first came out of hospital as a wheelchair user and I I got slightly to terms with, you know, right, paralysis is going to mean ABC, But, whoa, going out in the world as a wheelchair user, holy shit, this is going to be a whole other thing. I mean, where do you even start? The way people talk to you, the way you can't get around, you know, like all of it was a bombardment. And so I realised quite early on, I'm going to need every little bit of pluck, every bit of 
tenacity and like a bit of fuck you-ness that I've got yep. in me that was always there, but also a bit misguided. I had nothing to fight back against before my injury. And now I've got a lot to fight against. Let's channel that. And so I think the some of that those better traits, but I also think there was a... There was a lot of shedding of, you know, sort of the the rough edges and all of the bits of me, that the creative energies or the competitive energies that were kind of probably a little bit problematic at times suddenly got really, really heightened. And I felt actually, this is great that I brought those things in. I mean, the creative side in particular, because I was always into my art and always loved it. You know, when you're at school, you never really... If you're into those things, not necessarily always encouraged. Mm. And I came out and went, whoa, I'm just going to do my art. And it, it gave me this armory, I feel, to just attack the world in a way that an artist would. I used all my imagination and my creativity in a way that I'd never done before. So I'm very grateful for that. Well, often, and I want to talk about art in a minute, because often the most beautiful art that really hits you in the heart comes from a place of pain you know like our beloved Frida who love it I love love Frida (laughs) so much I based my um GCSE art final piece on on Frida's Henry Ford hospital on the bed yeah but I made it like it was obviously like there was no trauma at this point in my life and it was just sort of like me and body image and boys and it's like I can't even look at it I I don't want Uh, to see that painting ever again I would imagine and it was life size it was awful anyway love Frida we need to all wear flowers on our hair and have a monobrow and whatnot yeah she's amazing I want to talk about that in a minute but Going back to this, looking at your old self, because I think this is going to be deeply compelling for so many people, especially if there has been a marker mm. of pain in one's life mm. and making peace, which you've just described, you're at this place of acceptance, but also a place of gratitude as to who you are now. There was a moment in the book where you were looking at that wild quality that you could see in yourself and it was when you were quite early on in your rehabilitation and there was a very poignant line where you sort of I guess you were asking yourself you know how can I be wild and trapped Mm. which is how you felt at the time how how do you feel about that now I still don't quite know because it's it's so I guess this all comes down to identity and when you're young and you're working your, what, what your identity is and, and who you are, I was very wrapped up in that idea of like I was this sort of wild, free-spirited, uncontrollable, slightly untamed young girl. And then I was paralysed and a wheelchair user. And these things, these traits don't mix. There is no way they can cross over. And I found myself thinking, how can I be both things? So over the years, I still feel there's a there's a dissonance there that isn't quite I, I always... I still feel feel a murmuring in me sometimes when I see certain things happening and that I can't quite express myself and that I, I describe myself sometimes as like an inner, there's a little animal inside that's sort of in a cage rattling to kind of get out. And that's not just about paralysis, I think. Well, maybe it is just about paralysis, but I think people can identify with that, that there's an inner you that's kind of an inner child maybe. Mm, yeah. Yeah, maybe that's what I mean. Yeah. Like that like, inner you wanting to like have that freedom. Yeah. And it's not possible. And for me, I have a very literal version of why that can't happen because I can't walk and I can't move. So that gets very contained. But perhaps it's 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 very relatable to anyone that you kind of feel you can't quite be the person that you want to be for inhibited. You're inhibited in some way. So I think over the years, and back to the point we were making earlier about this sort of becoming more comfortable with who I am, I found ways to express that wildness. So I can still be paralysed and free. I can still be those, you know, 
there is perhaps the word, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a paradox yeah. there. And I can embody that. And that's the beautiful thing about life. And that's what I love about being disabled in a way is that there's always a space to uh, redefine what disability means. And for me, the search to feel free and to feel wild and to feel like I'm connected to the person I was and to the wider world, even the natural world, actually, I found ways to do it, whether that be as simple as finding a wheelchair that can enable me to get out into nature or it's I've found people that can carry me into spaces where I can feel myself or whatever it is I I need so I think it's just about finding those coping mechanisms right I don't know if it was you consciously landed on that or not but early on in your rehabilitation you were seeking out ways to allow yourself to have that freedom and I, I I'm imagining one of the first points was seeing a swimming pool in the rehabilitation centre and just going for it. There was one day where you went, I'm going in, and you did it. Yeah. This sounds so... This can sound really um, like I plucked it out of a motivational book and I don't I don't I really want to say this and it's be it sound genuine I had this idea that I was paralyzed and I was frightened of a lot of stuff I was frightened of my body I was frightened of other people's perceptions of me I was frightened of the wheelchair I was frightened of falling out of it I was frightened I had a lot of fear a lot more than I'd ever experienced in my life and I didn't like that at all I didn't know what to do with all the fear it was everywhere and I could feel myself like grasping for ways to get rid of it that weren't me, like holding on to other people, you know, I mean, literally and metaphorically holding on to other people to keep me safe. And I was like, this is ridiculous. And I realised that, look, if you're going to let yourself feel fear, you're going to be more paralysed than you already are now. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. OK, so fear is, you know, people say I've actually wrote about this in, in the book as well, which is when people say oh, I was paralysed with fear. That's a real thing. And I, I was like, if I'm going to I'm going to paralyze myself and my body's going to be paralyzed, I'm doubly fucked. So yeah. no. So when I started seeing ways in which I could get in the water or I could get on a motorbike or I could go places that I didn't imagine myself or see myself, scary places like places with other, other people that were looking down on me or whatever, I could feel the fear like a physical weight sitting on my chest. And then I thought, well, it's only you it's only you that's stopping you if you if you let this you are literally making your life even harder and you've got enough of that already so get rid so that's when yeah the swimming pool I saw it and I'm like you have to get in there you know you can but I was scared you know it's like just do it just do it and then I started realizing this there was this liberated feeling of all right you're frightened but that's okay just move towards it and I know that a lot of people find that strange, you know, you, the compulsion towards fear, yeah. where some people, go, they go away from fear. I realised then that's what I would have to do to survive or thrive is go towards the fear. Because otherwise, yeah, I would be more disabled. Which leads me nicely onto another quote <laughs> that I have written down, Sophie, because it is just full of quotes that have just impacted me in, in a huge way. And... This was after, again, early on in your rehabilitation and also like against the wishes of the team <laughs> of doctors around you. You went to Canada yeah. to go snowmobiling. Yeah. Is that how you say it? Snow- yeah. Snowmobiling. 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 It sounded wrong when I said it. Snowmobiling. Snowmobiling. You're on a snowmobile. Yes. And, and it was obviously this hugely exhilarating moment and you're with your dad and you're whizzing across the ice at an insane speed. And the line I wrote down is, I felt like I was on the other side of fear and there was no going back. And I was like, oh, my goodness. Yeah. This is like a little equation. Like, you know, if you always push past that thing, can you go back? Can you go back to being scared? 
I don't think no. so. I don't think so. In my experience, no. You can always feel the nervousness, but you've been there now. Mm. It's almost like, I don't know, if you've ever been hurt and you've, you, I don't know if you feel like you can be hurt in the same way again once you've got past it. It's like you build up. It's almost like there's a, if you visualise it, it's like you kind of, you get to a point of no return. That, that I, I just, on the tipping point of fear, it's almost like a mountain. You've got over the top of it. And and so you can't go back now. It's almost like you're on the other side. And I just felt that feeling of like, wow, I'm on the other side. Here we go. It's like you've broken through. And yes, I'd just been on the snowmobile and we'd gone across the the the, water, the the frozen lake at 60 miles an hour and I was absolutely terrified. And then I got to the other side and I was like, I'm alive. Holy, this is, this is, this is what it feels like to feel alive. Oh my God. And that was the moment where I was like, I can't go back to, there's no, no, there's no way. So yeah, I think maybe, maybe you can't go back. Or if you do go back and you're facing a similar fear, you know how to get through it. You know you can because you've done that. Yeah. 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 You like laid a path for yourself. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Like I'm saying, I feel like I, I've got this sort of idea of who your parents are. I've got <laughs> these wonderful characters. And there was this great moment where your dad, who was dealing with, like you say, how it's impacted all the people in your life, he, he wanted to throw this party that you were massively on board with. And this, again, was quite early on in your rehabilitation. You had all these people that you loved there. And you had this party and you let your hair down and you're laughing with your friends and there's music playing, wine flowing. and You had this wonderful time. And you said to choose to be celebrating instead of commiserating at such a dark time in your life helps to shine a light into the areas of yourself that you might have forgotten and that you know that's counterintuitive a lot of the time to 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 celebrate when things feel heavy Mm. but you've realized that by sort of forcing yourself into that space there was this illumination of bits of you that you'd let fall away so what bits were sort of recovered in that moment do you think in the partying so yeah I I I don't know I don't know where the idea even came from. It was when I was rewriting it, I was like, where did we, where did this brilliant idea come from to have a massive party? A massive party, like all of the friends that we knew and loved to celebrate coming home from hospital when I'd just been paralysed. And I think that, that, so to answer your question, I think it shone a light into, I'm still here. Yes, parts of me died and parts of me will never re-recovered. And now I do feel like a different person. But... There is that girl that, I mean, all the things that I valued, I still value. So that hasn't gone away. In fact, they've got heightened. So my value, my love for my friends or my love for my family or my love for a party or my love for music or being in that environment of just fun and letting your hair down and letting go. I loved those things before. That was part of who I was. And then I was like, hold on, I'm sitting on a dance floor. Okay, maybe I'm in a wheelchair. Okay, maybe this is a little bit different. But I st- I'm still getting the same kick. Mm. This is amazing. And that was so important. It just set the scene for, 
it just set the scene. And I think yeah, I, I, I will be forever grateful for the ways in which my amazing parents supported me throughout my recovery in such different ways. And they are wonderful. I owe them my life. But that moment of having a party after the after the injury is just brilliant. I think, you know, I mean, I, I know people, if I said to them, you should have a party. If you've just been paralysed, yeah, have a off. party. They'd be like, fuck yeah. off. Yeah. But I, it was for uh, for us. And also it really helped cement our family put, put us back together because that's what we used to do before. That's what my parents always did. They were always party people. And so for us to do it again, it was almost a bit like going, oh, okay, yeah. it's all right. We're all back together now. Yeah. Soph didn't die. You know, we all got through this. No, we're all one in one piece. Let's do what we do best sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and this was by no means sort of linear recovery uh, involving your parents as well, because the bit of your story I didn't know at all until I read the book was when you'd had this out of the blue situation where you'd had a splinter in your bum and it got infected and you had an open wound. And that led to, at the time, an unknown Mm. uh, bed rest on your front and it and it ended up being three years. Yeah. I mean, I found it beautifully painful to read because I was so grateful that you're willing to share a bloody awful moment where you were you'd gained an element of freedom and you know going out back into the world and being with your friends. And the next thing, you're in your parents' house, you're lying on your front mm. for three years. It's unimaginable. And how you got through that. You know, you had your brilliant parents there and your brother and some friends that were visiting very regularly. But I don't want to simplify that time of pain, but it certainly seems towards the end of it that art did save you. Completely. It did. And I'm really grateful you pulled this up because I think there's something really unhealthy about the idea that once you've acquired the disability, there's a sort of moment. It's a bit like when you've suffered a loss of any kind a bereavement, anything, it's like, oh, you've come to terms with it now, it's done, it's closure, you know, you're now moving on into the world. And with disability, in my situation, that it doesn't, it hasn't gone away, it never goes away. So there wasn't a linear sort of like recovery and it got better and better and better and easier and easier and easier. In fact, the the secondary complications that have come around have been almost more impossible to manage than the the original injury. So yeah, so after when, when I was going through this period of prolonged bed rest, which for anyone who wouldn't understand the reasons for that basically if you're sitting down all the time if you get a wound anywhere on an area that you're sitting it's not going to heal because you're sitting on it um and it will heal eventually but it takes a long time and I had got this splinter which I didn't know was there and then I got this wound and then it turned into an abscess and then it had to be removed and basically was left with this big hole like an ice cream scoop had been taken out of the right cheek of my bum and I couldn't sit because that wound wouldn't fix so I had to lie on my stomach for what was meant to be a year then six months sorry then it was meant to be a year then it was then it turned into two and then eventually it ended up as three years and it was just torturous on every level and yeah as you say our literally it was free honestly Frida came down from this Frida. like Frida. and I, I call her the patron saint of the disabled I don't know if I should do that or not but she felt like a saint she like this, this postcard arrived it was a picture of Frida Kahlo sitting in a wheelchair painting and at this point I'd been lying on my stomach and I was really struggling to paint or make art really I was struggling with everything with motivation it was very uncomfortable you couldn't do a lot in that position and um, I'd really lost my way and I really didn't have the tools to cope and mum couldn't deal with it either and it was too much. And then this 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 door opened into painting again and I just got, I just dived into painting 
and just found a way to like position this canvas under my bed and I would paint for a bit and then my arms would go dead and I'd have to roll around and try and get the pins and needles out of my hand. Then I'd paint a bit more. And it was just the most amazing experience because it, it gave me this map back to me and I I will be forever grateful for the power of art. I think it is the greatest tool that we have and, you know, just being able to get out what's in your mind onto paper or escape in that way that's incredibly liberating in ways like I people talk about this often and I've lived it if you are trapped your imagination is your only freedom Mm. and I I couldn't go anywhere physically I literally couldn't leave the bedroom and I mean I could if I was carried around but I really couldn't go anywhere I couldn't even sit in the chair so my mind just went all over the place and I found a way out so it was it was just one oh wonderful thinking about it now it it was just amazing so I was painting all these Frida paintings copying myself as Frida then painting myself in the water and painting like it just it just went on and on and on. It was amazing. I have to add for everybody listening to this, it's not like you were doing little stick men. You're a bloody brilliant <laughs> painter. Like because people were going, oh that's cute. You're doing some painting. No, you're fucking amazing. <laughs> and you know, oh, even in the book, you've done these line drawings, and line drawings are the hardest thing to do because yeah. unless you're a seriously accomplished artist, line drawings just look like a kid's done it. But your line drawings. They're exceptional and they're emotive because they're simple. I mean, you're you're brilliant, brilliant artist, and I'd love to see those pictures that you're oh, talking about. You. I'm sure they were. And you know, it is such a healing thing, whether it's poetry or yeah. having because there are no rules with no. art, are there? And you, it's how you're feeling and how you're choosing to express and make sense of everything. Yeah. And going back to our beloved Frida, you know, she did that so exceptionally. Yeah. And you can see, like, any of her paintings, you go, bloody hell, she thinks she's having a bit of a shit time there. Like, you can see it. You, you, can. you know. It's visceral, isn't it? You're it like, is. oh, it Frida. Shit. Yeah. Totally. And I have to say, as someone who, I don't know, when I had my injury and, and in the time since where I've struggled with my mental health, I didn't have... I'm not, I was never very comfortable with not being okay. Um, my mum's very stoic, very re- resilient. And it's all this sort of like, we're fine, we're fine. I've always been like, we're fine. And I, so it wasn't, it, it wasn't, it's not surprising I ended up finding art as this, it was a tool for me. And I think, I don't know how people live without it. Like, I just don't know how you deal with all the stuff that's going on if you don't have a way to get it out. I just don't. And yeah. I mean, I found myself when I was in hospital and I still do it now. I, I do these either I do these like line drawings which I which are in the book which I do freehand little line drawings of things that are in my mind whether it's me running or skipping or whatever or jumping or it's even just me in my chair with my friends or whatever it is I do these little drawings but I also was doing closing my eyes putting my pen on a paper and drawing from my imagination and they are mad I mean they come out a bit wild sometimes there's an arm there and a leg there and it doesn't look very proportionate but sometimes they come out and they are like hauntingly the feeling they are the f- exactly that exactly that and I I yeah that's that's the best coping mechanism I've got I think in for, for dealing with all of this you've got to do an exhibition or something oh I'd love to do it oh I don't know no you do know uh, I do know yeah you do it fuck it fuck, fuck it, it. <laughs> seriously you have to because and you'd have such a diverse range of work as well and there'd be storytelling in it oh please okay I'm going to like bug oh, you've you. Thrown it out there now. No, you have to. Oh, and I'm going to like be DMing you and going, have you done it? <laughs> You've got to do it. Honestly, I'll be first in the queue okay, to come okay, and see Oh, shit. Yes. It'll be amazing. So, you know, there's so many bits of your story I haven't covered as yet, but I know 
there were so many moments throughout the book where you could see you having to process the discrimination that you were facing in all different areas. College seemed like a particularly tricky period of life because mm. you had, it wasn't even, it was like outright discrimination where people were actually rude to you mm. and, and, and pointing at you. And I guess in the earlier days of your rehabilitation, you didn't, have the voice or know what to say back whereas now you know in your career and life it's your mission mm. to have that voice for yourself and others I think it's perhaps uh not it's oh how do I explain, explain this I think when when people say you know the concept of like does she take sugar or the idea that people talk to you've heard that expression mm. they talk to the person that's with you things like that okay that, that you can call them microaggressions, you can call them outright discrimination. There's a there's a scale of yeah. of of experience and the impact that people have on you for just day to day life. You know whether it be like you said, students kind of pointing at me and laughing at me, or it be literally you physically can't get into a building because there's no access. Yeah. These are all on a scale of shit. And I I have yes to start with. I have no idea how to deal with it. I was like what I'm just going to fight back that got exhausting <laughs> so I can't fight every battle and now and then I then as I fell into television and fell into creating a profile which I'm still trying to build I realized the more I had I the more I could fight back and from a space where people would listen because we should all know the fact is it's very difficult life as a as a wheelchair user life as a disabled person it's it's really challenging and there's things that can be done to say that. There are so many solutions out there. And and I, I've encountered so many problems. I was like, right, where do we find the solutions? And my little artist brain in me was going, oh, there's ways here, ways there, ways there. Um, and then I found television and I was like, that's the tool to help. And I feel it does help. I think it's done a huge amount to normalise and, you know, represent disabled people. And I think the UK is leagues ahead from many other countries in the world that don't really put disability into the mainstream. But we still got a way to go, way yeah. to go. But yeah, it is, it is a definitely like it's exciting when I've found I've been able to figure out what I want to say and then find a way to say it and then got this this space to to, to say it that's where I feel like oh purpose meaning I've figured it out this is why this has all happened to me and it's wonderful space to sit on a, on a selfish note but also on that kind of greater scale of like maybe we can shift the dial here we can redefine what disability means we can talk about the problems and I love doing that now. That's my mm. thing, you know. You're bloody good at it. I mean, as you've just said, it's not just the microaggressions and the things you have to deal with on an emotional level. Mm. It's a very practical, systemic problem as well. Yeah. And, you know, even today, finding the studio we're in today, which mm. has wheelchair access, is not something I've thought about before, yeah. which is not okay. No. But I, okay. I hadn't. And, it, and it, I was sort of shocked and surprised at how few studios... Yeah had wheelchair access and were wheelchair friendly. And I found that incredibly sad. And we all kind of know the government aren't going to do anything about this because this isn't just like studios. This is shops and leisure centres and wherever else you need to go to get into, to be with other people, to buy things, to eat, etc. It's not a given that they're going to be wheelchair friendly when we're looking specifically at wheelchair users. The government aren't going to do anything. So is it down to the individual businesses and industries? Do you know, it's it's one of those questions, sort of chicken and egg, isn't it, really? I mean, it's I uh, my agenda, or the place I come from with this, and 
I, I suppose so many other sort of charities that represent disabled people and, you know, bodies that represent disabled people in the UK would say it's a combination. It needs to be everybody involved. Of course, from the top down, it would help if we could have a bit greater <clears throat> empathy and a wider understanding of how to support people to be able to to live and thrive with their disabilities, um, not sort of just constantly trying to get... It's it's so nuanced, and I can't answer this question very quickly. It's This is a whole other podcast, you know what yeah. I mean? It's so complicated. But I do feel where we can, it's on us as in our community to, to speak about what we need um, in a way that will... Which gets it, which does get tiring. Uh, absolutely, it does. And I think the, you know, they call it activist burnout or whatever is a real thing. Yeah. And I've seen it in my community, especially with COVID, people physically and emotionally unable to keep going with yeah. this fight because it's just, I've got too much to do. This is too much. I've got to look after my own needs and try and tell you to look after my, it's, it's, it's exhausting, but we have to do it. And so the problem is, is striking that balance between if you are somebody who is speaking out about the, the problems that you're encountering all the time in your day-to-day -day life, whether it's finding an accessible studio, whether it's somebody being rude to you, whether it's, you know, you're, you're, you're not getting your benefits that you need or your whatever it is, the support that you need. You don't want to always be fighting and always be that person that, oh, there's the disabled people kind of getting pissed off again, which is that stereotype of that sort of... Because there is disabled joy. There is there's all this, and it's such a beautiful thing to see. And I that's one of my favourite things in the world is tuning into Instagram and seeing disabled people all around the world living their best lives. It's yeah. like I just get such a kick out of it. And so it's like, right, I want to show you both. And I want to show you how it how it looks to be both. And often I found when people this is another thing, and I know I'm jumping a little bit off off track here, but when I talk about my joy of life or my gratitude for life or my love of my life, I almost feel like I can't tell you how bad the things are as well, because then you won't believe me. It's like if I say, you know, I'm paralyzed, I can't walk, and I can't go here and I can't go there, there's that pity thing. There's that kind of implicit like, oh, it's shit to be disabled. And then I tell you, but hold on a minute, I live the best life I I, I love it. I love every inch of it. And I wouldn't change it. Then there's that, hey, what? You, what ha, hey, hold on a minute. What are you talking? So there's this constant contradiction. And um, so to the point about sh shifting perceptions and sh and so therefore making the society a more, you know, a, an easier place to survive and live as a disabled person. I think we need to change perceptions there too. Yeah. That this is, you know, that kind of, it's it's small things, small adjustments, attitudinally and physically, that can enable disabled people to integrate more effectively and, and easily and naturally. And then obviously government needs to do the right thing by, yeah. you know, it's all of that. You see, yeah. I'm going around in circles, you know, it's, it's a difficult thing, but it's not impossible. And even in my lifetime, I've been paralysed 18 years and I've seen the way things are changing. I don't think a young girl being paralysed at 18 now would have to deal with some of the things that I had to deal with because we live in a better world now. Still a long way to go. Yeah, the fight continues. <laughs> but also, you know, you, and I'm sure you're not going to be quick to sort of big yourself up here, but you've been a huge part of that change, not only here, but also the last part of the book is harrowing, talking about your trip to Ghana. And, you know, whether you call it the worst place to be disabled, no, I know that you've yeah, talked about yeah. this in the book, do you call it the worst place in the world to be disabled or not? But it's certainly a very harsh environment to be yeah. disabled because of the lack of education yeah. around disability. 
But you, because of the attention that you drew with the documentary you made, the UN then started investigating these prayer camps where people from the disability community are sent and they're treated so badly. You helped change something that was mad, globally, yeah. which is, that is huge powerful shit it feels like powerful shit so it is yeah, powerful shit it does feel like powerful shit i mean that's that was one of that was a bit of a moment where i thought shit like yeah. i could do some stuff here change we can change but then i to, so for, for clarity's sake the bbc had made a strand of documentaries called the world's worst place there was the world's worst place to be a woman which yeah. i think stacy dooley there was the world's worst place to be gay i think and i don't know how they landed on those particular countries they went to in those documentaries but human rights watch had done this terrible report about what was happening in Ghana at the time to disabled people and so that was the question right is this the world's place to be disabled so we went to go and have a look and it was yeah a wake-up call for me and I I can't I mean wow the stuff that we saw was was really quite really shocking and the documentary was very um, impactful and, and and thankfully it helped Human Rights Watch to do their work and to draw attention to what was happening which is some chaining and some just some really abusive practices towards people with different types of disabilities and then eventually there was some sh- there was change made the government eventually started they they banned the practice of shackling and then there was some ca- the camps were investigated and things like that so you know at the end of the day I don't think that documentary would be made now with a white middle class British presenter presenting it. I think we've we've moved now, and that story should have been told from a Ghanaian perspective, from a person with a disability from Ghana. Those are things that I would say. I think I feel uncomfortable a little bit about, and we're just I'm just putting that out there now. But I also thought it was this amazing experience of going, wow, it is actually possible to to change things. It is. It's, it might feel like you can't change stuff. It's so huge. But we can, like yeah. collectively we can, yeah. individually we can. Yeah. And that was like light bulb moment. That's mm. when I was like, oh, oh my God, this is it. This is it. I want to do, what can I do? What can I do? And then I threw myself in all these different directions. There's so many people that need helping. Where do we go? What do we mm. do? You know, and that, that's that been really fun working that out and moving that forward. Mm. And I hope that continues, you know. I mean, you, you talk about, obviously you've got the beautiful, prestigious job of, of hosting the Paralympics and reading that section was just a pure joy. But you talk about this it was a double-edged sword. You had this huge influx of celebration around the disability community and just so much noise was made. And you saw practical change in London around that time with accessibility. But then when it wasn't on the TV, that dwindled. And that's what we need to stop happening. It is a hard thing because I... The Paralympics did, there was a movement that was created and anywhere, every time it comes around, I feel the community kind of harness it and go, right, let's use this, let's use it, galvanise everyone, let's 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 talk about disability more, let's mainstream it, let's talk about it. And it gets really exciting and, and especially when the 2012 Games came around into the UK and then there was this amazing movement, a moment where the superhuman campaign came out and I remember sitting and looking at that and I, got, I couldn't believe it. I was like, somebody's just said disabled people can be superhuman. And I, at this, at this point, I've been paralysed for about 10 years. I not have been treated that way. And I couldn't get over it. And I thought, right, we're here. This is it. This is this is the change. But the game stopped and it went quiet and disability sort of disappeared again. And then four years later, it comes back again for the next round of games. And then, and there's this hope every time. Let's, let's make this moment the moment we stop forgetting about disabled people when there's conversations around inclusion. 
disabled people don't get brought in and, and can this change? And so for the activist in me or the advocate in me always gets hopeful, but I feel that it's there is now, I think that's happening, but just it's just not happening quick enough. It's just happening quick enough. You know, and people think that because there's certain laws in certain countries that are there to protect our rights, that we've got equality, but we don't. Nope. And, and you know, and I'm say, and saying this from probably one of the most privileged positions you can possibly be in. I mean, I've, I'm one of the very, I think, the, the 10% of people in the world who need to have an assistive device to mobilise. There's something like 90 million at the, on average or, or something. I can't remember the actual figures. Only 10% of people have access to this assistive tech they need. 10%. Um, the fact that I'm sitting in a wheelchair is a privilege. Mm. And that's this is the reality. And it's sort of like, ah, we've got such a long way to go. So I do think the Paralympics is wonderful as a vehicle for change. But there needs to be more. It can't be every four years. It can't be every four it's years. It's the only time that we're not only talking about it, but celebrating it. Yeah. Like talking about looking on Instagram and seeing disabled joy. And, and also, I think it's, you know... As you just said, the disability community, you're always going to um, galvanise and and come together to push things forward that need to be changed. But the other end mm. of it needs to be people have to listen. Yeah, yeah. Listening is the most important thing here. And then acting on it. You can't just sit there and listen. But I don't know many people that would truly listen and then not want to be part of systemic change. And as you said, it's huge. It's a complex intricate problem that's been around for thousands of years yeah. and it's about perception and it's about the practicalities of everyday life but <clears throat> without sounding whimsical I really feel optimistic when I hear you talk about it that there is a huge possibility for change. I think so and I, I do I, I mean maybe that's the optimist in me I do feel there is that always that that always there's so many people out there doing the work to to be heard to, and also to listen and and but so I've got I think a couple of things that I get excited about one is I think we're moving into a world where there's a little bit more empathy and understanding that um you know that I suppose off the back of various movements we've seen recently there's I think a, a wake up call to oh, actually, other people have lived experiences that perhaps I don't know about. Yeah. I need to educate myself. Or oh, I've certainly seen that. That sort of movement there to to be willing, I think, is exciting. And that that's, an, that's a great platform from on which to grow. Um, but I also think, in bringing it back to the reason we're sitting here today, people have been given a chance to tell their stories. And it's through storytelling that we can change the world, mm. isn't it? It is. Uh, storytelling is my favourite medium ever. Yeah, me too. It's so yeah. beautiful and it's a motive. You can't walk away from an amazing story, whether it's a life story or not, without feeling moved. No, exactly. And that's where I get excited because I guess I bring it back to what are, the, what are the tools I've got? What are the tools that any of us have got to make the world easier for themselves and the people they love? And I would only say the only tools I've got uh, my, is my story it's it's my art it's these are the things I know I've got and now I've you know got writing and I've told a story that perhaps might land on somebody's lap they read it and it just one little thought might land with them that actually hold on I should probably think about access in my business or in my home yeah. or, and, I'll, and maybe that's enough and if that 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 will do you know that's just one little bit of impact and I, I feel 
people like me are being given a chance to to tell their story. Um, it doesn't need to be in a book. It can be on social media. It can be on a blog. We've got tools now. It's the great thing about social media. It's the great thing. We can learn when we use it correctly yes. and we follow people that really have something to say. Oh, have you not learned it's so powerful. much? Oh, so much. Me too. Me too. And so I, much. I do know that, I, of course, I know that social media is a dangerous place. Only if you use it badly. There you go, I think. And if you go in and you, so you curate your feed. Yes. And you, I mean, I follow people that blow my mind and mm-hmm. I, I literally I come out and go my god I think I've just learned whole new thing perspective on you know I follow people from all different backgrounds and, all, and I love it I love Best. it I love it so much I actually feel that it's changed me as a person because mm-hmm. I get to learn and I can be curious from a place where I don't have to ask those questions that are a little bit difficult which I do get you know people are awkward you don't want to ask questions about things you don't know about you don't want to sound like an idiot you can go on social media and you can learn yeah you know and that's what we've got and so that's again another space where I'm like great, let's all use all these things to, to, to share and to learn and to grow and to then therefore hopefully impact the world around us for the better. Yeah. You know, like you just said, I've, I've watched you on um, Loose Women talking about that awkwardness and people asking you inappropriate questions that you wouldn't just say to someone you just met and the awkwardness of knowing when and how to bring up disability and quite rightly say it's just common sense just common sense like you would with any other subject in the world common sense but actually social media is quite a good way of bypassing a nervousness if you feel that way and and learning about I mean there's nothing more interesting than learning about other people's lives autobiographies are my favorite type of books I'm with you I want to learn as much you know we can never know it all or get it perfectly right but the willingness to to learn and listen is so exciting. It's it? so exciting. I know. I love it. And I and we. I think that's the. So this this thing about awkwardness and about getting it wrong and hurting people's feelings and that's real. I mean, I've just talked about the impact of that and how yeah. it can really inhibit you and 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 it can make your life so much harder when you're feeling that people are not getting how they're harming you with the things they say. So I understand people's trepidation around disability and not wanting to say the wrong thing in case it lands badly. I understand that and I empathise, but I mean, we're at a point now where we need to educate ourselves and there's so many tools out there to just go and learn. I mean, I invite questions in, but to your point, uh, with common sense, you know, if you want to ask a question, just be polite about it. Don't start asking me, you know, can I have children on the bloody train? No, 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 Which, you know, happens. And it's, these are, this is where it's like, right, just apply a bit of common sense here. That's really inappropriate and you probably shouldn't be asking people about their personal lives. No, ever. Ever. Just because they've got a wheelchair does not mean that's a ticket to ask anything you like. But also, if you want to know, and this is going to help us relate and help us interact in an honest way and help us connect human to human, instead of having this big elephant in the room that makes you go, oh, I don't really know how to relate to this person, then, you know, that, you've got to go and do that. And I think, you know, that's that's where things like my book, in a way, I almost feel <laughs> there's this lift of weight off my shoulders now. If somebody doesn't get it, I can go, here you go, read my book. Mm. It's such a freeing feeling of like, I don't need to explain things to my to it anymore. I've, I've kind of put it, on, put it down on a piece of paper. Here you go. Yeah, just read a manual yeah, yeah, as a to manual. how to, to talk <laughs> yeah. to me. Yeah. As much as I know that a book can't eradicate pain and it can't eradicate trauma and experience, do you feel a big weight off your shoulders and a sense of there was a catharsis in you know, we had to confront a hell of a lot. I know you must have done it cognitively in the past, but it's very definite writing it in a book. Do you feel lighter? Yeah, I feel like a different person. Really? Yeah, I do, yeah. I feel like I've... Got, I learned 
I, I went on this learning curve for the last 18 years of figuring out what ableism I had in me, which was a lot. Yeah. I did not relate well to myself for quite a long time. I was angry. I was lashing out. I was doing stuff that I deeply, you know, I had to do. I had to do. Anyway, I'm not, we're not going to go into regrets. I don't live with regrets. I can't yeah. be bothered with that at all. But there was a lot that went on. And I, and I, I struggled massively. And there was all this stuff going up and down. And I didn't know where I was going. And then I, I think now I've got to a point where I've worked it out. I've worked out. I've also worked out what I, ha- I, know, I know what I don't know. You know, that kind of, I know now how to admit where I'm fearful or admit where I'm wrong or all those things. I don't know. I just, growing up, I, I, it's a very extraordinary thing to say because it sounds a bit macabre, but when I had my accident, I refer a lot of people with spinal injury or several people with spinal injury that I know, they refer to the time they had that injury as they were sort of almost born again. And or they, so for example, if you're a year post-injury, if you ask someone how old they are, they might say, I'm a year old, mm. right? And I lived 18 years able-bodied 18 years non-disabled and then I lived 18 I've now lived 18 years disabled and I almost feel like I've gone through the same processes I'm 18 again and now I've I've got to a place of right I'm about to leave the nest again I feel like I'm about to start I don't know what the hell's next but it does very much feel like this marker I've had I've grown I'm now a grown disabled woman so what does that mean? I went through all the, the teenage, like I went, I've been through all of those phases in a different life and now I'm coming out. And so now it's this exciting opportunity to once again go out into the world and figure my shit out. But from a very, very strong position, it just feels very like, woo, yeah, away yeah. it's gone. Yeah. But it feels as well, like talking to you and reading your book. And, you know, we've talked a lot about young Sophie and, and the acceptance that you've got there. Who's the Sophie with me today? Is it even possible to articulate who you believe you are today? It's a hard question to answer. It's a hard question. I think I'd say I'm the reconciled myself. I'm I'm very comfortable now. I think I've lost an awkwardness with myself around. I used to feel quite aware in an empathic way of other people's feeling of their intimidation of my disability or their intimidation or their uncomfortable, their awkwardness. Which would, you don't need to be carried around. I can't be bothered with that no. anymore. I'm literally no. like, please don't do that anymore, Sophie. Just don't no. get rid of that shit. No. And that's gone. And that's nice. And yeah, whether that's because I've written a book or whether it's literally because, like I say, I'm 18, I'm 36, I'm 18, I'm, I'm done. I know where I'm at. So I don't know, the person I'm at is very focused and probably the most motivated and happy I've ever been in my life and probably I I don't know I just it feels very like I've caught the wave of something and I'm about to go somewhere I don't know where but I'm so excited about it oh ah just saying out loud so am I I'm so so excited for this book to go out into the world as I said to you I read it over the course of about four days. Chris Hellinger beat me. I think she read it in like two days. It's really annoyed me. I love you, mutual friend Chris, but we were texting each other frantically about the bits we loved and quoting bits to each other. And we were talking about it when she came for tea yesterday. Oh my God, that's it's, sad. No, it's so brilliant. And I, and I want everybody to read it. And, and I'm so excited to see what you do next on the telly. And also your art exhibition that I'm coming to. Yeah, you've thrown that out now, haven't you? Yes. That's got to happen. So, oh, I'm geez. very much going to be bugging you about that. But um, I'm so thrilled that you're in that place mentally and okay. and you feel that excitement. And what a joy it's been to talk to you. I knew it would be, but yeah. bloody hell. Thanks. 
I don't even know. Honestly, so exciting. Oh, amazing. Thank, Thank you so you, much. Sophie. Thank you. Oh, Sophie, what a just gorgeous, energising chat. I loved it. Sophie, thank you so much for your time. I am so looking forward to my personal invite to that art exhibition that will happen. Sophie's incredible book, Driving Forwards, will be available to buy in hardback, ebook, and as an audiobook from March the 17th. I urge you to read it or listen to it. And if you want to have more of a think about the relationship we have with fear, do scroll down your podcast feed just a little bit and find the episode with Dr. Pippa Grain. She's literally written a book on fear. And if you struggle with fear, like I do, she is your lady. While you're there, make sure you've hit the follow button so you're notified when new episodes of Happy Place are available. Thank you so much again to Sophie, to the producer Anushka Tate at Rethink Audio and to you beautiful souls. I'll see you very soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.